Hi there, I'm Eric Wordweaver Shervin, Goldie of the Ridgar Folk here in East Texas, and I'd like to welcome you to The Raven's Call. This is a show where I ramble on about different heathen-related subjects, just kind of whatever strikes my fancy, sets my mind on fire at the time. Big UPG warning at the beginning of these. Uh, this is my take on heathenry. This is, I'm very much a modern heathen. Uh, I'm not what you would call a historical heathen. I'm also not one given to kind of the fluffy bunny uh, do whatever you want kind of things. I'm, I'm very much a middle-of-the-road kind of guy, uh, which the more extreme views of heathenry have a hard time processing. But that's me. Uh, I'm very tribal-based in my approach, and uh, very much organic, growing, uh, modern heathenry, and big focus on grassroots heathenry. So anyway, uh, most of you already know that, but that's for anybody that's new to the channel. I. Before we get started, a little bit of housekeeping stuff. Down below, you're going to see the subscribe button, the bell, all that. Interact with it all. Subscribe, ding the bell, comment, all of that fun stuff. Share out the videos wherever you feel like they're appropriate. Um, this is one of those things where the more you interact with it, the more it's going to show up on other people's feeds, etc., etc., etc. You know, YouTube algorithms. Uh, by the time you have found my channel on here, you already kind of know how YouTube works. So get it out there. Let people see it. If you if you feel like it's something that you want to see uh, show up to other people, or if you want to see more like it uh, pop up on your feed. So all my contact information is down there in the bottom. Uh, you'll find email, Facebook group. Facebook group is great. That's where I do a lot of my interacting with people. There's like 300 something people uh, involved there. We do some networking. I pull the people for ideas for the show, for input regarding episodes, just uh, fun stuff like that. Um, share out anything that I share out is going to show up on the Word Weaver Productions Facebook group. So uh, follow me there. Uh, Twitter, I'm trying to get a little bit more active with Twitter. The more that I look at Twitter, the more I remember why I dislike Twitter. Um, I can't stand Twitter. Never have been able to just brook it. I, it drives me nuts. But I'm going to try it anyway, so we'll see where it goes. Um, beyond that, mailing address, stuff like that, if you want to send in like fan art or you know anything of that nature, uh, fan art I will try and show on the channel when I get stuff, uh, if anybody chooses to send anything in. So it's all there. Anyway, on with this particular episode. Now this is a viewer request. You know, I like to do these, um, and this is not one that I can attribute to any one particular viewer. This is something that has come around in a number of my conversations, and it's something that always kind of baffles me, uh, in that it is a question uh, because it seems to me like it should be fairly obvious and so but given all of that I thought we'd go ahead and give it a video just to honor those requests and uh, you know kind of formalize something uh, into the narrative of the channel and so that is the subject of ancestor veneration now a lot of people call it ancestor worship I find that's a bit of a misnomer because it's not really worship per se um, I view what we do with the gods and goddesses more as worship. Um, and I know some people have and issues with that term in general. And I get that. That's, that's typically baggage from previous religious interactions, whether it be a previous religion that they have interacted with or associations with uh, larger religions in their area for which they might feel some contempt or at least some hard feelings of sorts. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, everybody's got their baggage. That's We're all growing and learning and doing. So uh, whatever terminology you choose to use is up to you. Uh, words mean a lot to me, as you can tell with the whole word weaver title and whatnot. Uh, veneration seems much more apropos to me when it comes to what we do with the ancestors because that's, that's the crux of what you're trying to do here. Now, 
in conversations with some other heathens that I've had, I've come to kind of the the feeling that the most impact that we have from our ancestors comes from about four or five generations back. Uh, some would say as little as three, some would go a little bit further back, but about four or five seems to be the most impactful set of generations with regards to your specific standing. Uh, this deals with Orlog, this deals with your socio-political standing, your ingrained culture from your family of origin, things like that. And beyond that, going back, there's not as much impact. Not to say that there's not some impact. As we've stated in a previous video, the traditions that are passed down by uh, previous generations do survive into current generations and influence those generations. Um, but it's most specifically what the past four or five generations have done with those traditions that have the most impact on your where, where you are in everything. It could be that you know a tradition survived for you know 20, 30 generations through a family, only to be you know, lost a few generations back and uh, anything more than four or five generations back you're gonna have a hard time revitalizing that particular tradition simply because there's not a narrative within the family still of that tradition's reasoning, existence, etc, etc, etc. Now those that are skilled with their genealogy or really know how to uh, get in there and get information from their families as far as past generations can revitalize those to an extent. We talked about that some in the uh, Praxis and Thu episode. Um, it's, it's a thing, you know, we work to kind of build our own traditions in the modern day, and a lot of that's influenced by previous generations. And most of the impact you will have from previous generations is from that past four or five. You're gonna look strongly, most strongly, from the parents and the grandparents. Uh, Great-grandparents to an extent, Beyond that, there is still some, uh, before that it's a fairly nominal influence. Um, most, the most important thing to the survival of a, uh, a tradition within a family is going to be how the previous couple of generations treated it with regards to where you are now. Something that was seen as super important way back 100-200 years ago is going to if it's not viewed as still as important, if it's marginalized by the last couple of generations, then that's going to impact how you view that particular tradition as well. Your impact on the tradition is going to have a significant impact on the next generation. And then what it turns into six or seven generations from now may look nothing like what you've done with it here and now. Uh, so even your impact is only going to last so long with regards to your, your, your impact upon the tradition and upon family. Um, I specify this because when we go in and we talk about ancestor veneration, when we talk about uh, honoring our ancestors in ritual and stumble and all of this, we, we have a tendency to romanticize the past. And that's something that we see across the board in multiple cultures. There's a tendency to think of the good old days. You know, we talk a lot about within heathenry the arch-heathen times. And I am one that says, and will say, I can't tell you how many times I've said it and how many times I will say it, but uh, I am heathen because I am heathen, not because my ancestors were heathen. I honor my ancestors regardless of their faith, 
regardless of their nationality. It doesn't matter. Um, I honor my ancestors because they have a direct impact upon my Orlog. They have a direct impact upon my life. And if it weren't for those in my immediate line, I wouldn't be here. If my grandfather hadn't married my grandmother, uh, when he did, where he did, etc., 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 the cogs would not have been in place for my father to meet my mother and for me to be here at all. So if my father had been born, you know, a few years earlier or later, they might not have crossed paths and I might not be here. Uh, there might have been a, an age difference that impacted their compatibility, all of that. So I'm grateful to my ancestors for the decisions and actions that they made. We'll come back a little bit to uh, decisions and deeds and actions of our ancestors because they're not all positive. And we will kind of touch a little bit on that and how we handle those things, okay? Now, you are the living legacy of your family line. And so one of the key tent poles to heathenry, as I view it, is the veneration of ancestors. You know, my, my big main tent poles are the worship of the gods, the honoring of the ancestors, interaction with the Vaitir, and our relationship with our immediate community, our Inengarth, our tribes, our folk communities around that. Um, those are like the main four tent poles for me. Um, that covers the spiritual side with the ancestors and the Vaitir. It covers the religious side with the gods, and it's, it covers the social, uh, cultural elements with our immediate communities and people. Now, it's fun to go back and look at our ancestors all the way back as far as we can go. I love the genealogy. I love knowing where my family comes from. We've been able to trace our family back quite a bit, um, all the way back to uh, Magnus the Berleg and back into Harald Fairhair's dynasty uh, through a lot of the work that my great uncle Melvin did before he passed and that some some of which my mother has done uh, in in years after that. Now the Scandinavian side's all through my dad's side. My mom's heavy on the British and German side. A little bit of Irish in there too which is kind of fun. And uh, so I've got a lot of really cool family information but <laughs> The impact of some of those way back is fairly minimal on me today. The actions and deeds of Harald Ferher have a bigger impact on global socioeconomic uh, influences and developments in Scandinavia than they do how I live my daily life now. Harald Ferher probably has so many descendants spread out all across the world, all over Midgard, that he wouldn't even recognize most of us if put to the test because he's not, it's stretched too far. There's too many degrees of separation at that point. It's undeniable that my great grandparents and my grandparents have, those that are, you know, past, have still kept tabs on our line now and keep an eye to what we're doing and, and how the family's going because they've a vested interest in our survival. We are their legacy. And so, that is where my main focus is. My main focus is on the last few generations. When I sit in Sumble and in my second round within within my tribe, the way our Thu is, uh, we, we do a three round Sumble. The first round being to the gods and goddesses, the second round being to the dearly departed, the ancestors, those that have had an immediate impact upon your Orlog, uh, some kind of measurable uh, impact on how you got to be where you are right now. 
And then of course the third round is a more free round, toasts, oaths, and boasts, uh, which is more about the community. So it's the religious, the spiritual, and the cultural all within one ritual, which is why Sumble is my favorite ritual that we do. Um, it's also less focused on the practitioner doing the actual ritual itself and more on the involvement of everyone there. I mean, it is truly about community. It's truly about tribe at that point. Uh, whereas, you know, bloat, feigning, whatever you want to call it, is definitely about the community and the exchange between tribes of the tribe of our tribe and the tribe with the gods um, and that gift exchange there, the exchange of luck and whatnot. This one really pulls it all into one beautiful little basket, and uh, Sumble is always deeply moving for me. And my favorite round of that tends to be the ancestral round, because I love to listen to people tell the stories of their families. I love to hear the stories of how these people came to be, and the impact that these, these dearly departed individuals have had on my people. You know, I, I love to sit and listen to them tell of their grandparents, to tell stories of their parents if they be passed, of, of you know, great uncles, great aunts, you know, aunts and uncles, cousins, whatever it may be, that had a strong emotional, cultural, uh, psychological impact on these people and helped make them who they are today. And it's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. And then I love to do it myself. So. One of the main things in the question that keeps getting asked is how do I honor my ancestors? What are some of the how-tos on ancestral veneration? Well, Sumble is probably the first and foremost for me. That is the, the main area where I really feel like we get a lot done there as far as from a community base. Uh, there are more meaningful and deeper and more personal interactions that we'll discuss here in a little bit, uh, but this one's from a community base. Sumble's where it, where it is at because you share that legacy. You put their story in the well and you keep that alive. You keep the echo going. And so I love to see that and it's therapeutic for me. Um, when my grandfather passed, I had a ritual shortly thereafter, within a couple of weeks, and I had a very hard time coping. It was, the man meant so much to me and had such an impact on my life, uh, and even more so on my little brother's life because of where he retired. My little brother was uh, of an age where he could be there at the grandparents' home for you know summers and things like that. Spent a lot of time with granddaddy. And uh, you know I did a lot growing up, did a lot of work for him, did a lot of work with him, and sat and swapped stories, and I have these strong memories of him and everything. Well, it was very, very difficult for me when he passed. And so the first time that I got to sit and stumble after he passed, I just poured all of that into my toast. And it, it did more healing for me than any of the, you know, tropes that have been kept alive in Western society. Um, you know, funerals. Uh, funerals are a thing. Um, what has survived in the general Western society, as far as funerals go, is an amalgamation of Judeo-Christian influences heavily, uh, because that's a predominant culture here in this area and influenced a lot of the laws pertaining to funerary processions and all of that. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of heathen elements when you're not dealing with specifically heathen individuals. So it's very difficult sometimes for heathens to heal when we're having to deal with that kind of 
you know, non-heathen interaction. There's so much show that we have to put on for families. There's so much stress and drama. And, you know, they always say that funerals are for the survivors. They're for the family, etc., etc., etc. Well, that's not entirely true. I mean, we've talked about funerary rites in the past, and uh, they're... Funerary rites are important. There's a reason to do them, and a large part of that is to help the soul pass on into the mound and rejoin the ancestors. There are things that we do to heal, but I do not find that a lot of healing occurs with funerals. Uh, most of the real healing that I see happens after funerals, after the show is over, after the, those obligations are met, and you get to go and really be with your thoughts, be with the family that matters the most to you, those, the Inengath that had the impact from this individual, um, that's really where the healing gets to occur. Now, this isn't talking about individuals outside of the roof tree or outside of the, you know, the extended family, as it were, or outside of a tribe. This is, you know, those, those are different because you are an outsider looking in on a familial grief at that point while still feeling your own grief. So it's a little bit more complicated and the funeral then takes on a different air for those individuals. Um, the mechanics of what's going on with the soul and everything are still the same regardless. It's a ritual to help them pass over that whole psychopomp kind of aspect. For the healing process though, um, outsiders looking in, it's, it's very cathartic for them to be able to be there for the families, etc., etc., etc. But I don't know about you guys, most of the time I can't wait for that stuff to be over so that I can go and be with the people that I really want to be around at that time and do my hurting and, and do my healing. And uh, so, man, it's, it's tough. Sumble is a wonderful way to deal with that. Sumble is a wonderful place to experience some healing amongst individuals that you trust to reconnect with that spirit and to make sure that they know you're still there and that you are still connected to them in a way it keeps a line tied to the ancestor uh, the now ancestor uh, that has passed on so it's it's functionally you know from a spiritual standpoint very effective in keeping that tie that line there um, additionally it helps to keep their legacy alive but most importantly for us it helps us to heal it helps us to connect with them and to feel some of that catharsis ourselves. to feel some of that grief release or just to feel that grief and to process through it and to experience that love that we had for that person that respect and to put that in the well, to say the things that we may not have gotten to say or we may not have thought to say or may not have taken the time to say in life, we get to say in Sumble. And similarly, we can do that with memory horns. Um, I've done that with dear departed friends who have passed, held a memory horn and uh, bogged offerings to them to maintain that connection, to honor them. And that's a wonderful way to keep that going as well. Uh, a memory horn is very similar to Sumble, but it's a specifically dedicated ritual. Now, I know I talked some of this in the funerary rites. I don't want to be too redundant in all this, but uh, it is a specific ritual wherein that it's a toasting ritual like Sumble, but it's focused specifically on that individual. There's not the multiple rounds of the gods and goddesses and the toast oaths and boasts. Everything is centered around that individual. It's very akin to the same kind of mentality that goes into like an Irish wake, that kind of thing. Um, it's a celebration of life, an honoring of them, and around the horn, be it whether you use individual horns or a single horn, whatever, whatever your praxis for this particular ritual is, uh, 
the crux of it is sharing the stories and keeping their legacy alive to make that connection to them to honor them and to just connect your well with a bit of their energy so that's the memory horn you know and we'll make offerings specifically to them some of the more personalized kind of rituals that we can do uh, with regards to ancestors uh, this one gets a little a little woo-woo on some stuff um, specifically there comes down to a point uh, uh, some specific belief structures that you need to figure out how you stand on in order to make these most effective. Some individuals feel that in order to truly connect with the ancestors, in order to truly touch the the spirit of that ancestor, you need their grave site or their remains, whether they be uh, inhumated or uh, immolated. Uh, inhumated being the burial and immolated, of course, being cremated. Cremated remains you can go to and there's a physical connection there, especially if you keep the the cremated remains either with the family in the home or if you spread them on communal property, family property, where you can then go and, and touch that spirit. Because there is a part of the spirit that remains with the lich, the, the physical body, uh, upon the death of the individual. And that makes a connection between the spiritual plane and the physical plane, all of which I see existing in profane, profane space and time. You forge that connection and that, like an altar, uh, that allows us to bridge the gap between the sacred and the profane within a sacred space and a ritual structure there, um, the lich, the corpse, whatever you want to call it, allows us that similar bridge past the permeable membrane into the underworld to be able to connect with those ancestors. That's one train of thought on it. Another train of thought on it is that because they are our ancestors and they are tied to our well and they are tied to our folk soul, uh, we don't necessarily need that physical medium to be able to connect to them. I am one that falls kind of in the middle. I feel like we can connect to the ancestors without necessarily the physical medium of the body. I feel like if we, if we do the practice right and we can call out to them and we can forge that connection through usually some kind of memento, some kind of picture, keepsake, something like that that helps us to create a focal point, an anchor, a beacon, if you will, uh, we can give, we can shine a light to the other side where they can see where we are and we can reach out to them. It's like telephoning them at that point in time. Now, my belief is that similar to those human interactions, telephone does well, but it's not nearly as powerful as face-to-face. -face. So we can connect with them remotely, but it's still nowhere near as powerful as going to a gravesite or going to remains, if you can. Uh, sometimes the circumstances of death prevent us from being able to do that, or just sheer distance prevents us from being able to do that. When distance is a factor, I find it to be advisable for individuals to make pilgrimages um, at reasonable time frames that work within your life and, and your capabilities. I mean, if you are strapped and check to check and, you know, your great-grandfather is buried in California and you live in Wyoming, it may not necessarily be super feasible for you to go and visit the gravesite. But if you do ever find yourself traveling that way, it, it would be wise to stop in and say hi kind of thing. Um, I feel like the veil is thinnest at the grave because that is where they still have a foot in the door, as it were. That's that physical body element that bridges the gap between the afterlife, the underworld, 
and the mound and the physical world where we still exist, the overworld. With that, gravesite communions are extremely powerful and extremely meaningful. Uh, there are there's tons of references in the lore to kings who would go and sit on a mount, mound sitting, uttasitta, out sitting, um, where they would sit on the mount and commune with the spirit of that either fallen king, ancestor, whatever, uh, seeking some kind of insight, some kind of wisdom. That's a large thing that I see there. You know, we, we get our luck through a number of different means, one of which is from our ancestors, through our familial line, through our philgia, um, and then another is through our own deeds and actions, what we generate in this life. So we have inherited luck and we have generated luck, all of which go into the luck bank, plus we get that which is gifted to us from the gods and goddesses. Um, it's particularly effective if you think of it as a currency uh, and the different forms and ways that you can uh, follow the flow of money. This is similar. You know, you've got gifted, you've got that which you generate yourself, and you've got that which is inherited, etc., etc., etc. You get it. So we have that tied to the familial line. Um, I find that going to the gravesite itself is, or to the remains in general, particularly effective in exchanging that luck in, in making that connection and the like I was saying the wisdom aspect seems to be a very strong part of what I see gained from interactions at the gravesite um, a lot of times remote access will be a little guidance here and there maybe a little help on something mostly an exchange of luck an offering made to the ancestors to show honor to them to show that we still keep their memory alive um, it's visiting grandma so that you know grandma knows you love her and you get to spend time with grandma and you have meaningful interactions with grandma and then grandma will look out for you when she can uh, it, it's the you know you know you can go to her when you need a pick-me-up because anytime you've gone to granny's house uh, she's had a you know plate of biscuits ready for you and is i think maybe a southern thing <laughs> Sorry, um, but she's usually got food for you and takes care of you because you're her grandbaby and she's always going to regardless of what kind of trouble you may have gotten into She's gonna be there for you and I realize it's a globalization Not everybody has the same experiences or the same kind of frame of reference on that, but in general, that's what I'm going for I also have the belief that in the afterlife once in the mound a lot of the mundanity of life gets boiled away because they're no longer tied to the same social structures that they were during life. They're not obligated to those things. Um, they are still tied to the frith web. They are still tied to the family line and whatnot, uh, but they don't have the same obligations to, you know, politics and things like that. I see a lot of these things kind of fading away and meaning less to them than just simply the importance of family and the perpetuation of the line, uh, keeping the luck strong in the line, those kind of things. So I do a lot of offerings to my ancestors. As a matter of fact, every day I put out an offering to my ancestors on my ancestral altar in my home. Um, as a thanks to them for letting me be here today and for granting me those things that allow me to do what I do today. And then I, I give my earnest hope that I will make them proud. I ask them to smile on me, to grant me luck, to grant me insight, wisdom, and guidance where it might be needed, um, but ask them to look on me with pride and to smile on me as I go through my life and hopefully bring honor and pride to the family line. So 
The specifics on that is going to get down to individual hearth cult as far as what you do, what you offer, things like that. Uh, with a number of my family members, it's most effective for me to share a cup of coffee in the morning. Um, it's communal. It's respectful because I bring it to them. I pour theirs before I pour my own. There's some specific things that I do in my personal ritual that show respect for the ancestors. Even if I am bleary-eyed and can barely hold myself up because I've been working weird shifts and weird hours, I still keep that tradition every single day. Uh, after, after the night has passed, I could have been drinking coffee all night long, but the first pot of coffee that I reflect as the day's cup of coffee, I give to them before I take my own. And that's just simply a sign of respect to them and an honoring of them. At festivals, I like to include a plate that is sharing in the feast that the community is sharing. You know, because when we do our festivals, we bring our tribe in, we bring some select guests, extended family, both heathen and non-heathen all together, and then the heathens of us will go off and do blow up fanning, etc., etc. And then we'll come back, we'll have, you know, our camaraderie, we'll have our games and things like that. And then Throughout the day, the non-heathens will kind of phase out, the heathens will remain, and the heathen-friendly, those that want to be included in it, and we will sit and assemble usually as our clothes, um, because at that point we boil down to the ones that really want to be a part of that, and usually they're sticking out for that specific ritual. And so, I like to bookend with ritual, I like to open with a bloat and feigning kind of situation, and then close with assemble. <clears throat> in this, when we do offerings to the ancestors, we'll set aside a plate and they are served before the rest of us. I will set aside a plate, if we're doing it at my house, I'll set aside a plate for my husviti and my hearth gods, and I'll also set aside an ancestral plate. It's very common at different rituals, especially those during the time of year that I refer to as the season of the witch. This is the time of year that I see being from starting at winter nights through the end of Yule, uh, where the veil is the thinnest and the ancestors are more easy to contact. It's easier to bring them over to our side or to reach over to their side and connect with them. Uh, this is largely why I feel like cultures across the world embrace ancestral worship more heavily during these times of year, simply because the mechanics of the veil being thinnest then. Dia de los Muertos is during this time of year-ish. Um, Shawan is during this time of year-ish. Tons of cultures view a heavy ancestral veneration and inclusion element in this time of year. I, I love seeing that. I think it's beautiful and it definitely reinforces the idea that the veil is thinnest here. So especially during this time of year, I like to focus a lot of our rituals um, into, towards including the ancestors. Um, like Winter Nights is one of the first ones where we'll really do it up on that and then of course Yule. Um, Different tribes do it differently. I like to do some dedicated kind of stuff to the ancestors at specific times of year. Um, like there's, you hear talk about Alpha Blot, which is a thing um, attested to in the lore. And Alpha Blot was seen as very, very insular, very, very uh, family focused. It was not open to the outside. Even kings were turned away during Alpha Blot. And there's some debate as to the translation of Alpha, of Alf, Alf. Uh, as the elves, and some see it as a you know 
as a veneration of the Vaitir in the area. Some see it as the translation of Alfar, as the forefathers, the, the paternal or male ancestral spirits that's still tied to the family, which is then bookended by Disirblot, which I tend to do in the opening of uh, Yule as my Mother's Night tradition, uh, simply because that's how I like to utilize that. I usually do something to the male ancestors a little bit earlier, and then to the mothers on Mother's Night. Uh, sometimes I'll try to include both during Yule. It varies. Um, that's one of those things that it's, as long as it's during this this season of the witch, as I call it, uh, as long as I hit the points while the veil is thinnest and really make a point at it, um, we seem to be okay with that. Other people are much more regimented in how they go about it, uh, are specific with their alphablot type uh, traditions. I actually share the viewpoint that alphablot refers to both the elves as uh, Vetir and as male ancestral spirits simply because uh, I, I view that part of the soul complex going into the mound, going into the earth, becoming tied to the land, and therefore becoming spirits of the land, as it were, uh, tied to the family unit, etc., etc., the, the proximity element. Uh, but again, my view of the soul complex is fairly complicated, hence the complex element, and you can go back and watch my soul complex videos if you want to get a rundown on how I see it. It's just how I see it, uh, based on research and observation, lots of observation, Lots of research. So anyway, all that aside, um, that's one of the ways that you can choose to honor the ancestors, is to do dedicated rituals, specifically throughout the year, to honor these. Um, when you do those, I like to have an altar set up specifically for the ancestors that we're venerating at that period of time. And I like to do, like with the male ancestors, I'll pull out pictures of them, keepsakes if we have them, things like that. Again, focusing most heavily on the last four or five generations, but including any that we might have because they all play a part in where we are today. And then, of course, same thing with uh, the Dicir, uh, the ancestral mothers, the cult of the mothers, etc., 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 all kind of tied together. And what I observe around Mother's Night, uh, others vary on how and when they choose to do that. Nonetheless, um, I like to make sure those elements are there. And then, of course, in every ritual we do, in every festival we do throughout the year, I set out an ancestor's table, altar, um, at least a plate of offering to them, wherein everyone gathers and we honor everyone's ancestors that are there at the time. I love the tradition of being able to put out a table uh, especially the venue will support at a table where people are invited to bring mementos, pictures, things like that that will include their ancestors' spirits with the festival. Uh, it's part of the reason why we like to do our kind of bloat and feast at the beginning. We ask the gods to come be with us, to bless us, and then we feast together as a tribe, and we open the feasting with a gift and honoring to our hearth gods and to our ancestors to invite the ancestors to sit at table with us, to be with us during ritual, to celebrate with us and be there for us, with us, all of this. So I love the mechanics that go into that. The food offerings are great uh, because they can be carried across to the other side by Vaitir, by spirits. They can be buried, they can be left to the Vaitir to carry off to the other side because the Vaitir can cross the veil more easily than we can. Um, they can be bogged, they can be, some of them can be burned, not all, uh, it just depends. But food offerings are communal. You're sharing in the sustenance of the family. Uh, where they fed you, you feed them. 
and it's a reciprocation element, which I feel is very apropos to what we're trying to do here. We're reciprocating the care and honor that they granted us in the afterlife where they're no longer no longer able to do it for themselves here we stand up and do it for them and that's a beautiful thing to me i love to see that i love to include those kind of things so other ideas for how you can honor your ancestors storytelling is a wonderful thing whether it be over stumble or just in general um, swapping stories of our ancestors keeping their memories alive sharing these things um, i know a lot of people will set up and do specific rituals for specific ancestors on say uh, the anniversary of their birthday or the anniversary of their death date, um, whichever is most poignant to that individual. But the key thing being that they're specifically trying to maintain that connection to that particular ancestor, specifically trying to keep that tie alive and to keep that legacy going. Sharing this with family members who also knew them helps to reinforce this. Uh, but also sharing it with tribe members who did not necessarily know this individual helps to spread it as well. So it's not something that I necessarily see as having to be completely insular. There is power in the insular nature of it, but there is also power in the sharing of the story and the spreading of the legacy uh, and the spreading of their tale. So those are ideas that you can do. Um, I have also been known to do solo stuff um, and solo stuff is wide open. Uh, there's so many different things that you can do individually uh, because you don't have the scrutiny of the outside world. Nobody can tell you if you have a connection with your ancestors, nobody can dictate to you how you talk to them, how you go about connecting with them. You know, you've got cultural through tradition that builds up within your tribe or within your hearth and how those things are done. But if it's just you sitting outside sharing a drink with grandpa on the front porch, uh, while you're smoking a cigar or a pipe or if you're listening to music that was very specifically reminiscent of this person reminds you of that person and you connect with them there's a reaching a state of mind wherein you can more easily access the other side and you call out to them and they listen it's not necessarily as strong or poignant frequently as some of the rituals we do when we actually reach across the veil through ritual practice um, but they're still there, they're still tied to our lines, they're still with us. And so one of the things to keep in mind is you shouldn't expect, if you're doing small little rituals um, on a daily basis, I mean, don't expect the ghost of your grandfather to stand up there by the altar and smile on you and pat you on the back. Um, maybe a sense of warm fuzzies because you're not necessarily reaching altered states of mind and things like that that might be necessary to be able to see across the veil we're looking for physical manifestations uh, that would be more prevalent during say times when the veil is thinnest um, you're looking for more nuanced and subtle influences um, that you just kind of have to figure out for yourself it's not something that i can tell you i mean i can tell you kind of how it feels to me uh, but it doesn't necessarily translate to anyone else other people may experience it differently People that are gifted with the sight have a different experience on this. Theirs will be more palpable. Theirs may be more visual. Theirs may, theirs may be more tactile. Um, it varies depending. And everyone's got some connections to the other side. Uh, we have ancestors there that allow us that connection there. Uh, but some people are particularly gifted either with communication across the veil or with perception across the veil. 
and uh, their theirs will be very specific to them and somewhat different from what the majority of the rest of us experience because they are a statistical outlier um, there's still a lot of them uh, just by sheer numbers alone but uh, those that are truly gifted with the sight they're more of a statistical outlier uh, which makes them more special in that respect <laughs> so that being said there's a lot of things that you can do and that's the big thing with this whole question is how do I honor my ancestors? Well, you have to decide that. The big thing is you honor your ancestors. You go out there and you tell their stories, you keep their stuff alive, you do things to honor them, do things in their name. Um, you know, it, it, the options abound with respect to how you can go about it. The big thing is knowing that it's something that I feel in my approach to heathenry should be integrated with heathenry in general. It's not something that's necessarily set aside and special for like this one day a year we do this with the ancestors. No, I do stuff with my ancestors every day. I just do big blowouts on some specific days throughout the year in order to really jive that in. You know, I, it's like phoning home, it's like phoning to the grandmother frequently and then actually going to visit her on occasion. Um, those that's kind of how I, I see the whole smaller ritual versus larger ritual element uh, you really are making that connection very strong and really really reconnecting there you're getting to sit and share stories you're getting to sit and share a meal together things like that and it's a beautiful thing it's a wonderful thing and really deeply meaningful and so I hope that this ramble I know I haven't given I've given some specifics but I try in general not to give too many specific specifics on how to do it. I'm not going to tell you, you know, go out and make this and make that and give offering to them this way because it's different for everyone. What's right for your hall is right for your hall and it's not necessarily for anyone else. Your hall, your call. Not my hall, not my call. I mean, it's my, my catchphrase for a reason. So I'm not going to tell you how to connect to your ancestors. You have to figure that out. I can give you some ideas on how I do it and how I've seen other people do it. Um, and some general good practice as far as how to maintain those relationships, such as sumble and memory horns and daily rituals and ancestor plates at festivals and feasts, doing a big bloat like alpha bloat or deser bloat, where you really focus on those things. Um, those kind of things are all tools that you can use to maintain that relationship. The big thing is just maintaining the relationship, getting out and doing something. You can have all the intentions in the world, um, but if you don't actually do, then you're not really achieving anything. You're not maintaining that relationship. You're letting the grass grow tall on the road to this ancestor's home. And you can think about it like, uh, if you haven't called your grandmother in a while, um, you might miss opportunities and things like that. Uh, that relationship becomes strained, uh, neglected, and so and we all fall victim to this and get guilty of it at times when the mundanity of life gets in the way. We have a hard enough time maintaining connections with our living relatives, those that have those kind of relationships with their living relatives. Some are estranged from their living relatives and those are complex situations all their own. No judgment here on any of that because I know way too many stories for way too many reasons. But uh, we have a hard enough time maintaining our relationships with living ancestors, past ancestors, um, living relatives, past ancestors, it gets to be complicated and we really have to be mindful of it. Now, one of the things I said we'd come back to, and I do want to do this before we leave, is in venerating ancestors, you talk about ancestors in a positive light because we do owe them, whether they were uh, 
great kings or if they were just Joe Blow factory worker or even if it was a horse thief, they're still responsible for you being here and you're still beholden to them as a result of that. You still have that life obligation to them because without them you wouldn't be here. And so even if they were, you know, wretched individuals in life back in the day, there is an element of obligation there. Now, not to say, it's not to say that if someone is truly toxic to you, that because they are a relative, you need to overlook toxic behavior in order to maintain those relationships. No, um, that's not the case at all. You can still be grateful to say parents or grandparents for bringing you here, uh, but distance yourself from them because they are toxic to you. And that's where the positive influence ends. So these are things that we have to keep in mind. With ancestors, we can look to the positive because, like I said, a lot of that mundanity gets boiled away when they pass over. At that point, they're communing with the ancestral spirits, and we want to keep the good part of their legacy alive, but we also have to accept that all of their actions played into the Orlog that we inherited. And so there will be some negative things in there. I've got some skeletons in our closet way back in those generations that I am sure impacted our luck as a family for generations because they made some really poor decisions. They really messed some people over. I mean, I've talked about the Harold Fairhair dynasty. And if you think about some of the things that Fairhair did, and I use this one because it's way enough back that it's minimal impact, and there's a number of you out there that also share this particular lineage just simply because of the way generations work this far down the line. Um, but I mean, if you look at Harold, yeah, he was one of the first kings that unified Norway, but he also put a lot of people to death if they didn't agree with him. Uh, he was a conqueror. And so, you know, there's some positive and negative elements, but it's a different day, a different age, a different time, and I can't necessarily judge. You know, I get people ask me, well, what about, you know, I've got this ancestor way back that was a horse thief or that owned slaves or this, that, and the other. And I'm like, yes, their actions impact your Orlog but you are still who you are because the line has come down to you here. So while you can honor them and you can respect them, you do not have to own their mistakes. You do not have to own their negative actions. You can acknowledge them and venerate them and honor them in their place in the family line by fixing some of those issues, by being a good person, by bringing good honor and good luck into the family line. and you know, fixing some of the negative elements, some of the negative impact they may have had on the family name. So that's that's kind of a thing there. Um, I get asked that one a lot. How do I view this? Because, you know, being tied to the Fair Hair Dynasty also ties a lot of individuals to Olaf Tryggvason, to uh, to Olaf Digre, Olaf the, the bastard, <laughs> Saint Olaf to some, um, <clears throat> because, you know, they were essential in the conversion of Norway and that area to Christianity at the time, um, and not always through favorable means. There was a lot of coercion, a lot of, uh, of torture and putting people to death if they didn't convert kind of things. Now, not all of Norway was converted by the sword, but these individuals did their fair share of it. But it's so far back that it's minimal impact on you now. It's one of those where we try to keep the best of them alive and keep the best of their memories there because we're all human and we all make mistakes. You may have some ancestors there that you choose not to focus on in that. And that is the end result of their actions. That is something that we in our lives now need to keep in mind that we want to be the kind of ancestors that our descendants will want to honor. 
that they will want to say our names over the horns because you may have individuals in the line that you choose not to honor that way because they were a negative impact on the line, because they were vile or dastardly in life and part of the consequences of their actions is their story will not be perpetuated, their story will not be carried on, or it will be carried on as a warning, as a you know life lesson kind of thing. You know, this is where it could lead you if you do these bad things. You know, this is the impact you could have on the family, like that black sheep over there. That's the impact of our actions and our luck being added to the well, being mixed into the orlog of future descendants. As a result, we may do things in ways or do specific things that specifically cast us out of the veneration of future generations. And so that's the kind of thing that, you know, we need to honor our ancestors, um, perhaps acknowledge the life debt that we owe to certain individuals, but don't brook any of their negative actions and negative behaviors you know you can talk about you've got this horse thief back in the family who you know if he hadn't married you know Janie Sue over here and sired your great 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 grandfather then you wouldn't be here um, but he was still a horse thief he was still you know a conniver he was still a murderer he was still these things and so you need to know that that's there and be able to say hey look that's not who we are now we have turned through my actions and the actions of my ancestors following him and even those preceding him, uh, we have drowned out that negative influence and we are proud that we were able to absorb that. So even though he had a hard time or fell on hard times or did bad things, uh, the family is still strong. So kind of a, a particular take on that. Um, again, my views could be different from other individuals, but um, it's not a case of excusing negative behavior. It's not a case of simply overlooking negative behavior. It's the fact that through action and deed, through consequence, we can drown out their negative behaviors. We can be a more positive influence on the family line and the luck of the family. Uh, and we honor and reinforce those connections that were positive ties to the line, that were strong luck added to the line. So yeah. mm. those are the kind of things that I get asked a lot. And it's like, it's not a simple answer, you know, in order to talk about how we deal with the impact of uh, ancestors with negative actions, um, you kind of have to talk about all this other ancestral impact and veneration and why and how and all that in order to set the stage to be able to discuss those things because the context is necessary. So a lot of times when I ramble on, what I'm trying to do is establish context on things. Uh, that's just why I'll pull it back to my point after I've rambled to set context and whatnot. Anyway, so I hope that helps a little bit. Again, this is a conversation that could go on for days as far as how, why, what with regards to ancestral veneration. Um, and I've touched on it some in my previous videos. A lot of times it's tied to uh, just the general discussion of ritual or in one of my rants and my anti-racism rants and stuff like that. But that's this one's specifically about how do we honor our ancestors? Why do we honor our ancestors? And there you have it. Um, and for me, I honor my ancestors regardless of their faith, regardless of where they're from, because my Christian ancestors are still responsible for me being here. If they hadn't done what they did when they did it, within the context of their culture, the variables would have changed and I wouldn't be here. So I still owe them for that. Now, you know, I feel a 
I feel a tight connection with some of my very Christian ancestors because not that many generations back, that was what it was, you know? I mean, hell, one generation back is what it was, sort of. Um, two generations, really, because my parents don't necessarily fall into that category. Um, they are their own thing. And so, but like my grandparents, very Christian, and that's fine. I honor them because they were good to their families. They took care of us. They protected us. They provided for us. And so I have the utmost respect for them. Uh, same thing with my great-grandparents, hardworking individuals during hard times. And that's just how it is sometimes, you know? So I do have ones with uh, actions and deeds that I prefer not to perpetuate simply because you know, I don't want to reinforce those kind of negative things, but I do understand and own that they are part of the Orlog that I inherited. And I'm proud to say that, you know, the general lines of my family drown out most of the negative through all of our good. Because the bad ones are typically outliers. It's, uh, you gotta have generation upon generation of bad individuals to really kind of poison the well, as it were. Uh, or someone who does it in a splendid and magnificent grand stage kind of way. I think to some of the world wars and uh, should give you some context for that. Uh, there, there are some things you can do on a big enough scale that it will taint the family line instantly. Uh, and then there'd be generations to try and make up for that, even if they can. So, but for the most part, average individuals, we're not gonna taint the family line so much that it can't be absorbed. And, you know, my experience with family has been that, you know, you can go pretty far astray, but eventually, at least some part of the family back there will still take you back in. So, you know, don't let it get you down if you've fallen on hard times, if you've made some bad decisions, or if you've just gotten kind of disconnected. Reconnect, try to do something your descendants will be proud of, and choose how you wish to honor your ancestors. Everything's gonna be all right in the long run. So with that, we're gonna draw to a close. This turned out to be a longer episode than I anticipated. So I wanna say thank you all for watching. I really appreciate the feedback that you give. I really appreciate you guys watching. Uh, for those that have made it this far in the episode, a vast majority of people don't make it this far in the episode, but thank you to those that do. Hail to you all. May your hearth fires burn bright. <laughs>